Richard Leonard, your latest book, Hedge, Magical Dispatch and Catholic Games and Sacraments, and we're going through the different sacraments. Used to be known as Extreme Unction, if I remember rightly, and now the Sacrament of the Sick or Anointing of the Sick. What have you to say on that? There are 37 miracles in the New Testament. 29 of them are healing miracles. So whatever else the Lord left the early church and the apostles and disciples, it was that their ministry had to be a healing ministry in the richest possible way. And we know that Paul and Peter and some of the other disciples actually uh, witnessed to actual physical miracles as well. So it's in that tradition. The problem was that it ties in with the other sacrament of penance. By the time we get to the 7th, 8th and ninth centuries, people are starting to feel more and more unworthy that they couldn't possibly be loved by God. And God was a tyrant and he was going to smite them and they were going to go to hell for eternity. This was really strong theology and was with us for a thousand years. So the sacrament of the sick quickly around the 7th, 8th century goes from being a sacrament of getting well to extreme unction, your final blessing, like your ticket to heaven, and you pray for the grace of a happy death, and that was that the priest would be there as you breathed your last. Well, actually, I do think people do get a lot of happy deaths, but I'm not sure whether it's the priest in attendance anymore. I think it's about whether you know you're loved and uh, you're surrounded by people who love you. That's got to be a happy death. Well, extreme unction was this extreme moment where no matter what I did wrong, I'm going to get into heaven because there'll be somebody to give me my ticket into heaven. And it's still with us to this day. I can go to a friend of mine who's having a hip replacement and see them the night before the surgery and I say to, you know, would you like to be anointed? And they'll go, I'm not that sick <laughs> because the whole idea is, oh God, I must be dying and no one's told me. And of course, it's all about getting well. So in the book, I really make a case for having more expectant faith. You know, I think we've limited our expectations of this sacrament, and I want to explode them again. I want to go back and expect that whatever the Lord can do, the Lord will do. I have no problem believing in miracles because I've seen the miraculous happen. and But I do have a take on miracles, which is they don't happen from outside coming in. Maybe uh, the sacrament is like a trigger moment to let healing properties um, absolutely free in my body. As a Catholic, all I've got to do is affirm that miracles happen and the author of them is God, because we don't know how that happened. So I can affirm both of those very happily. But I wonder whether neurology is helping us. Modern neuroscience is now starting to say we're only starting to understand the healing properties of the brain. And what we don't know about the brain is far greater than what we know. And so maybe going to Lourdes or Catholic charismatic prayer meeting or the laying on of hands or anointing of the sick, maybe these are trigger moments where healing properties that are latent, God-given, already within us, are actually set free. I'm interested in that idea as an idea, but that we should be a healing ministry was so what Christ was about, that healing in all its forms. And it's a very rich sacrament indeed. And that distinction that, you know, because it does raise an issue if some people are healed and others aren't, and even if it is something latent that's triggered within you, like it's not your fault if you die of cancer. People eventually die. And so there's an issue there, I think around maybe the difference between curing and healing. Yes. That, you know, we're thinking of the Father John Sullivan, the Jesuit priest who's now blessed and hopes to be canonised. Like a lot of people would say, even if he knew when people were going to be cured, but I think they all got a healing. They all had a sense of peace and Going to a deeper level. It's a really important point, Pat, because what's lost on us in those 29 healing miracles is that they were also about social 
and personal restitution. It wasn't just about being physically healed. Jesus gave back people their community. He gave them back their lives. He gave them back their families. In restoring a leper who had to live outside the town for the rest of their lives, in healing them physically, that was a social, a personal, it was a family healing happened as well. So I think healings happen on every level. I think, unfortunately, we've got trapped in canonization of saints in the Catholic Church only into physical healings. And the best example of where I think um, we should think more broadly on this question, because this is not dogma, we could rethink the categories for saints, so we're free to have opinion, theological opinions on this. And I have. And really it is an Irish saint, Matt Talbot. Like, I'm delighted for any saint who performs a physical miracle. But apparently Matt Talbot hasn't been great on physical miracles. But what he has been credited with is plenty of people praying that the one that they know, their child or their husband, their wife, their mother, their father, who's on the grog, on the booze, gets off the alcohol. And he's credited his intercession. So many people credit him with people who have been lifelong alcoholics. They would say, and so there's a big body of literature about this, that through the intercession of Matt Talbot, that that person has given up the drink. Now, if that's not the miraculous, that's got to be miraculous. And I think it's a sort of like a physical healing, but it's a social one, it's a personal one, it's a family one, because someone who has been in the grip of drink and gives it up, they get their life back and their life of their family and their loved ones get it back as well. So I would canonise Matt Talbot tomorrow because each one of those are profoundly healing miracles. So I have a rich idea about that, I think. That's interesting because what I was going to ask you was we've often associate anointing with the sick with physical illness, but you mentioned earlier in one of our previous interviews that mental illness is a huge issue today. It's a huge issue for young people. It's a huge issue for many people, anxiety and so on. There is an area where the anointing of the sick could be very powerful. Uh, the biggest killer of young people in Ireland, and I checked this before I came to Ireland, so and certainly true in Australia, the biggest killer of young people in Ireland and Australia right now, under the age of 30, is suicide. So if this sacrament doesn't attend to help somebody with their mental health as well, then I don't know why we wouldn't celebrate that. And also, on another level, I just know an awful lot of people who need a healing of memories. You know, their memories are so bad and they're so traumatised by those memories that they get entrapped in that really destructive cycle they're in and they find it very difficult to get out. So I wonder whether this sacrament, rather than think about physical lack of comfort, discomfort, would think about actually being setting them free from the memories that might actually be entrapping them and uh, trying for them to know God's healing as well. Now, you do have humour, sense of humour. Pope Francis talks about it as a hallmark of a saint. And you have a humorous story um, that I want you to tell in regard to funerals. Well, I finished the whole book with funerals, and I do do a little sleight of hand, but I own it right up front, because I'm trying to unhook extreme unction from death. But I, you can't not talk about funerals too, because... It's the dispatch part of the book. Um, so in a sense, yes, I understand it's final healing, if you like. And it's not just trying to be um, a little cute with it, but the final healing is our death, where we just move across. Into, and I have no problem in believing in the next life, because if we have this life, we can have another life. If you have one universe, you can have another one. And secular scientists are talking about multiverses these days. So I don't have a problem in believing in the next life. But that's the final healing for us, we believe, as Christians. But I do tell the story in the book about the, without question, 
the most powerful funeral I've ever done, the one of the funniest and the most confronting, which happened to be the very first one I ever did. And I was a deacon. I'm sent to the parish of King's Cross and the red light district of Sydney. And um, we had a big ministry there to alcoholic and homeless people who are on the streets. And the Good Shepherd Sisters were famously working with this community of people and wonderful they were. Well, one of these died within a couple of weeks of me arriving there as a deacon and deacons do preside over funerals. So the Good Shepherd Sisters asked me to do this man's funeral. His name was Carl. And they said, look, there'll only be four of us there at the crematorium for a pauper's funeral, an awful name, but a pauper's funeral. And there'll be the two of us, there'll be Carl and there'll be you. And on the day, actually, there were three other mourners. And I was a bit pleased about this because Carl, apparently by reputation, was a pretty difficult customer and a chronic and homeless alcoholic man. So I thought after a few prayers and a scripture reading, and I said a few words about the scripture, then I thought I'd open it up to a few reflections. So I said, look, I don't know Carl at all. I never met him. But some of you might have, and especially, you know, those who have come today, you might like to pay a tribute to Carl. And the nuns were going, oh, no, don't do this. <laughs> but I'm too far into it now. So up got this lady who was, I think, about four foot ten and strong, little old battle axe. She looked, she had a tough life by the look of her. And she walked up and she said, thank you, Father. And then she turned to the coffin and she said, Carl, you are a bastard. You're a bastard, Carl. You're a bastard in the morning, a bastard in the evening, a bastard at night time. Carl, you were a bastard. Any way we looked at you, you were a bastard. I can't say what a big bastard you were. And it went on and on. Now, listening to that, even hearing that, was more than enough. It went for two minutes and she didn't say anything else. So she's on a loop. The nuns were hysterical. Hysterical with laughter, uh, where the sisters were just laughing themselves off the, off the pew and looked at me as they were say, you got yourself into this, you get yourself out of it. And I thought, well, I'll, I don't know what to do. So I stood up to break the cycle of this loop and it did stop her. And I walked forward to where she was and she said, so in conclusion, I say to you, Carl, you were a spherical bastard. <laughs> Any way we looked at you, you were a bastard. And then she turned to me as though she'd just given the most loving tribute in the world, said, thank you, Father, and sat down. Well, at that stage, I thought the sisters were going to be on the floor. They were just apoplectic with, oh, well, not a great, but they were so well, hysterical with laughter. Later, I found out that Esme, this lady, had been married to Carl, and they were both lawyers. They both were codependent alcoholics. They both ended up on the streets after um, the first 15 years of marriage. And um, she got sober, but always blamed Carl for, you know, their whole life had been a disaster. And um, so she was still full of anger and rage at him. But I knew she was a highly educated woman because it's not often that you ever hear somebody talk about a spherical bastard, which is actually a very clever, very adroit thing, use of the term, that because a sphere is a sphere from any angle. So I must admit I left the crematorium that day hoping and praying that not every one of my funerals was going to be that exciting. <laughs> I was prepared to go back to a very ordinary funeral after that, and thank God most of them have been. But there's something about that story, I think it's, first of all, it's really funny. There's something also about the raw truth, you know, that when we are truthful and when something is as raw as that, that it maybe helps you to move on to another stage, you know. The sacraments are about incarnational. Well, I think we've all been at uh, funerals, Catholic or otherwise, where we've sat through eulogies 
and we we wondered whether we're actually at the right funeral because you know while we want to speak lovingly about these people sometimes the eulogies can lead us to believe that we were living with a christ reincarnate christ incarnated again or a living saint you know i think what's worse at uh, funerals what we need to do is celebrate what we should celebrate but we don't deny that this was we're earthenware vessels where we're simple, sometimes destructive people. Now, we don't need to overly dwell on that either. And sometimes being at funerals where they do overly dwell on how awful the person was. But uh, it is a tension, and yet Christ receives our dead. And that's what we're celebrating at funerals, that it is Christ who baptises, Christ who does all the sacraments, and Christ who receives with mercy and love and open arms are commended into the arms of a merciful God to love and to cherish. And uh, I like that idea. And I still think it's full of hope. And even though secular funerals are becoming much more common, I have to say that when we get the Requiem Mass especially, but the Catholic Funeral Rita Liturgy right, when we do it really well, honestly, I don't think there's a better way to dispatch anybody. I think it's full of hope, full of faith, and it celebrates love. And I think that's powerful.